you can tell people cigarettes are going to kill you all day long. They know it. There's a skull and crossbones on the box. But there are still new people buying cigarettes every day. It's not stopping them. You show them what a lung looks like when it's all like tarred and black. And you show them a video of someone who went through emphysema and all of a sudden, oh, they stop. Because it, you appeal to their emotion. I think that's one thing that as a content creator and as a coach, it's really important to learn how to do is you can have all the facts and logic that you want, but if you don't know how to speak with someone and get them to feel it and the emotion that you want them to derive from it, you're never going to get them to change in the way that you want them to. Welcome to the Barband Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by Barbend.com. Today, I'm talking to Jordan Syatt, a world record-setting powerlifter and noted coach. I first met Jordan when he was still a college student, dedicating most of his time toward breaking a deadlift world record. He's the rare lifter to accomplish the four times bodyweight deadlift, giving him real strength sports cred. But Jordan isn't just an accomplished lifter. Some might know him as the personal trainer of entrepreneur and media personality Gary Vaynerchuk, and Jordan has built an impressive online presence in his own right. In the eight years since I first met him, Jordan has gone from a promising college powerlifter to experienced coach and internet fitness star, taking his own and his clients' experience and translating it into real-world takeaways for folks looking to live healthier and happier lives. Jordan's journey is incredible, and his brand of real talk is unlike anything the fitness world has ever seen. So getting him on the mic was a real treat. Also, I just wanted to say we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbend podcast in your app of choice. Every month, we give away a box full of Barbend swag to one of our listeners who leaves a rating and review. Jordan Syed, I know you're no stranger to our Brooklyn office, but thanks again for coming in on a cold winter day. <laughs> Last time you were here, I think it was like the hottest day of the year during the CrossFit Games. Wow, I forgot it was super hot that day. It was it was super hot, and sometimes when we record, we actually have to turn off the HVAC, and so <laughs> it, it will warm up in here over the course of the next half hour. So if we're talking faster and like hyperventilating by the end, it, it's just because it's it's so hot in here. Can the you hear the sweat coming off our, our lips going right in the microphone? Drip. <laughs> drip. The conversation is just, it's too hot to handle. Uh, Jordan, I, you're one of the busiest guys I know in the fitness industry, but when I first met you, you were still a college student. <laughs> I was going to say a snot-nosed college student, but you were you were very <laughs> polite and awesome. Uh, and at the time, you were on your way to becoming a record-holding powerlifter. Now you're known for a lot of other different things in the fitness industry. But for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the sport of powerlifting and maybe how that's influenced where your fitness career has come to today. Yeah. So, uh, well, I guess you could start with wrestling, right? So I started wrestling at eight years old and um, I made varsity as a freshman. So I started wrestling at eight years old and I started wrestling because my mom suggested it, um, mainly because my older brother, and I didn't know it at the time, my older brother was getting picked on a lot. And so she was like, all right, I want you guys to wrestle. And I didn't know what wrestling was. I only knew WWE. That's all. So literally, I remember I was in the living room on the couch and she was like, hey, so you guys are going to go to a youth wrestling camp. And I was like, 
you want me to hit someone with a chair? And you're like, awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I was like, this is very, very different than what I'm used to. And she was like, no, you idiot. She's like, Olympic style wrestling. And it's just one of those vivid memories. I don't remember what happened next, but I remember being like, no, you idiot. Olympic style wrestling. Boom. And then like my memory next just goes to being in like the old high school in my town and uh, just like learning wrestling. And I was obsessed with it. Like, I was absolutely obsessed with wrestling. It became my life. It's all I thought about. I did other sports too. I did soccer and baseball, but wrestling was like really, like I was made for it. I'm a short, stocky guy, uh, good balance, and fortunately gifted in it. So I, I made varsity as a freshman and I had to cut a lot of weight. And so that's sort of how I got involved in, in strength training because I was good technically. I was a good technical wrestler. I was good endurance-wise, but strength-wise, 13, 14 years old, going against 16, 17, 18-year-olds, I didn't have it. So I applied to a gym near in Newton, in Newton, Massachusetts, and uh, I was just like, I'll, let me just intern here. Let me take the trash out, clean the floors, and uh, just learn from you. And fortunately, they took me under their wing, and they were very science-based. They were actually big fans of Eric Cressy, Dan John, Mike Robertson, a lot of those people. The, the old school phalanx of like early yes. internet sports performance guys. Exactly. And uh, Pavel Tsatsouline, and they were really, they got me involved in science-based strength and conditioning. And the coach there, Kevin, I remember he had me do my first ever deadlifts. And I'll, I'll never forget this because it was, a, it was actually a kettlebell deadlift, the first one I ever did. And... Um, the next day he took me out to lunch and I remember my butt was so sore. I, and I'd never felt a soreness like that before. I'd never felt my ass sore. And standing up from the chair after lunch was terrible. It was excruciating. And I just remember Kevin looking across the table being like, your ass sore? And I was like, dude, what happened? He was like, get used to it. And, and I was hooked. I was just hooked and then obviously progressed from kettlebell deadlifts to barbell deadlifts. And, and I started with conventional, um, but I kept finding that conventional deadlifts were really bothering my back. Just no matter what I did, just when I got to more maximal effort weight, didn't feel good. So I eventually switched to sumo. Which is cheating, of course. <laughs> as, as we all, everyone listening to this podcast knows, sumo is, is cheating. You know what? This is a good discussion to have. Like, and I know you're joking. I'm, it, I'm completely. For, this is, but this I'm is important because I get a DM about this maybe once a month or so. I don't have a powerlifting following anymore. It's not like people follow me for powerlifting because I don't post about that very much. But every once in a while, once a month, I'll get someone being like, you know, sumo deadlifting, it, it's cheating. And I'll always be like, why? They're like, well, it's a shorter range of motion. And I'm like, is that, that's the reason. I just want to clarify before we go into the logic behind this. And they're like, well, yeah, it's a shorter range of motion. I was like, okay do you do a wide grip bench press? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, so you're cheating. Go close grip bench press. And, and the only legitimate squat is with your heels together, it's exactly by right. the way. <laughs> it was like, this is ridiculous. So, but yeah, so I, I went sumo. And um, then basically, I mean, right around the time I met you, I, uh, I was in college and I was obsessed with powerlifting now. So I'm in college and I hated it. I hated school with a passion. Oh, you hated college. I thought you were, I, I, was, like, I was like, I think, I think you liked powerlifting at powerlifting this time. Powerlifting saved my life as cliche as it was. Powerlifting was the reason I actually stayed in school because what happened was I was getting around that time. West side was everything. West side was like, everyone wanted to know about West side barbell. Like what was Louie doing there? He seems psychotic, but like he was putting out these videos on YouTube. <laughs> it was this thing I, at, around that time. This is like 2010, 11, 12. Yes, Exactly. 
in powerlifting, Westside was the thing. In weightlifting, which was a community I was involved in at the time, the equivalent of Westside was the Bulgarian system. It was yes. like this mysterious thing <laughs> that no one else like, oh, we we have to learn the Bulgarian system. Like that's the secret to <laughs> that's the secret to ultimate performance. So when I hear Westside, I, I think the weightlifting equivalent being the Bulgarian system. Because in 2010, 11, 12, there were a lot of young American strength athletes who were who were just preaching these as gospel. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because Louis would actually talk about the Bulgarians a lot and he would talk about the things that they did well and the things they didn't do well. But this is like in the, the age of internet forums when everyone was just talking in go, forums. Goheavy.com. <laughs> you remember you remember the old Go Heavy? Oh my God. Man, the T Nation forums, Go Heavy forums, the yeah, there were uh, some really good ones. But uh I remember just sitting in college, I failed a, a biology it wasn't an exam, it was, it was a project. Literally, a project that was worth 50% of our grade, I didn't do. I just didn't realize we had a project because it was all online. It was on this, like, it was called Sakai. It was like an online board in which they would post all of our assignments. And I literally never went on it. And one morning, uh, our biology teacher was like, All right, take out your projects. And I was sitting next to my buddy Kyle, and I was like, What project? And he laughed. And I was like, No, no, seriously. He's like, Shut up. He's like, You Are you kidding me? I was like, Dude, I didn't know we had a project. He's like, dude, it's been on Sakai literally since day one of school. I was like, I've never logged in. Never logged into Sakai, but never missed a set of deadlifts. You know what I mean? I didn't miss one workout. <laughs> I didn't miss one <laughs> workout. That's a fact. For five years, I didn't miss a workout. But uh, I went to the teacher. I was like, can you please, can you please like, give me an extra week and I'll get this to you? And she was like, no, you fail. And so I went and I was like, all right, I'm dropping out. But what had happened is about a week before, I'd written Louis Simmons an email. I wrote, I wrote Louis Simmons an email and I was like, hey, um, let me come and intern. Let me like take the trash out, clean the floors. I knew he had dogs. I was like, I'll walk your dogs. Like, let me just come and train. And um, I, I don't remember doing this, but I must have put my phone number in the email because the day after I failed biology and I had actually booked a one-way ticket to Israel because I was like, screw it, I'm leaving. I'm not going to do this. Louis, I, get a, I get a phone call when I'm in the dining hall Penn Cater Dining Hall, and it's an unknown number from Ohio. I was like, I don't think about it. So I let it go to voicemail. As I'm walking out of the dining hall, I listen to this voicemail, and it's like, Jordan, this is Louis Simmons from Westside Barbell. Uh, I got your email, and I think we should, uh, we should talk about seeing if you can come out here and train. I still have the voicemail on my phone, and uh, I, I saved it. It's crazy. And that's the reason why I stayed in college, because then I went to Westside. I trained there for the better part of three and a half months. My total increased by 300 pounds that summer. My squat, bench press, deadlift went up by 300 did, pounds. Did you add another lift? Did you, did, you, <laughs> did you add like the clean and jerk to that? It was crazy. It, it was unbelievable. And I trained two times a day, uh, basically. So it was about 11 times a week that I trained. Uh, and Louis was the most generous guy in the world. He took me out to eat every single day, breakfast, lunch, dinner. He, he literally s- spent several hours a week just sitting down with me, answering all my questions. And, um, and I remember at Westside, that's when I really started to practice sumo a lot. Louis was like, no, you're going to do sumo because basically everyone does sumo at Westside. Because you're, because you're a dirty, rotten cheater <laughs> is what you are. And I remember at a certain point, uh, at the end of the summer, I hit 405 for the first time. And this was at a, just, just for context for people who, who, who don't know, the body weight at the time. I was, I was 127 pounds. Okay. And I remember Brandon Lilly was at Westside at that time, and, and he told me, he was like, I'm going to be honest, uh, when you walked in, I, I thought you were a cross-country runner. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I mean, me. there's almost no recovering from that. There's nothing. I, I didn't know what to say. He was like, I thought you were a cross-country runner. And, and then he tried giving me a meal plan. He was like, I'm going to tell you what you got to eat. And uh, he gave me the most obscene meal plan, this most outrageous amount of food I've ever seen in my life. I was like, 
Brendan, you're like 330 pounds. Like what? I, I'm 127 fucking pounds. Like, and the only person at Westside who didn't want me to gain weight was Louie. He was like, no, no. You can do, he saw the potential to do really cool things in that body weight exactly. category. Everyone else was get huge, get huge, get huge. It was the age of get fucking huge in, in powerlifting. And, and a gallon of milk a day, go mad. Yeah, exactly. And Louis was like, nope. And Louis was even like, I think I uh, might want you to go 123. And I was like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Cause I was, I was about 127, 128. And I was, this was like right around the time I had just gotten over a lot of binge eating and emotional eating issues that I had from wrestling. And I was like, no, I'm not going to cut weight. And uh, so I just competed at 132, pulled 405 for the first time. And when I pulled 405 for the first time at competition, it was actually, I missed it on my first attempt. And then I came back and I pulled it. And I remember being like, I'm going to deadlift four times body weight. And then about three, four years later, I did. And this was at a time in powerlifting. I mean, we hear four times body weight deadlift, 4.5 times body weight deadlift is the new four times body weight. <laughs> Someone told me that recently. And I was like, what? I was like, Powerlifting has come a long way, but this was at a time when there weren't that many active powerlifters in the world. Correct, deadlifting four times body weight. I mean, we hear about it now, and like it's like everyone who's been training for two years and they post it on Instagram. <laughs> but no, in two thousand like ten, two thousand eleven, it just wasn't a, it wasn't a common thing. You could count on one hand maybe the number of athletes in the United States who were active who were who were doing that at the yeah. time. Yeah, no, I mean, three times body weight was is, is seen as advanced. Mm-hmm. Three times body weight is seen as, as and relatively few people were doing it. I don't know. I, I, on the top of my head right now, I couldn't name more than four people I know who've ever done it. And like, just, I don't. It's a, it's a very high level of strength. And I remember at my competition when I did it, once I put the bar down, I was like, I'm done. Like, my body was wrecked. It was just, it was brutal. Your body isn't made to do that. Which that was a re- that was a federation record at the time. Yep, that was um, that was uh, what was that? The RPS, the RPS meet, and I competed in a bunch. I competed in RPS, AAU, IPF, IPA. Uh, I competed in uh, USAPL. I competed in all of them, not all of them, but a bunch of them. I competed in uh, the SPF with, with Louis, which was you know. That was a funny one. <laughs> you see, you, you, some I've, I've never been to an SP, I never went to an SPF meet, but I heard that that was that was where you go to see some freakish things. Yeah, I remember that's where I saw Donnie Thompson uh, hit three thousand. Yeah, yeah, so I, that was crazy. Um, he's such a nice guy. I really love Donnie Thompson. Um, but yeah, so that I mean, power thing was my life for the better part of from like we'll call it eighteen to twenty five. That's and I didn't miss a workout. Literally, didn't miss one workout. Like from that entire time. It's it's interesting because. I know, and we'll get to this in a second. Your, your career right now is you, you're still you're still a trainer. You're still working hands on with clients, and you're creating a ton of content online. You're probably best known for people listening to this podcast. They might follow you on Instagram. They might follow you on YouTube. They might have been exposed to the content you've done, not just in in strength training, but in in general wellness, nutrition, mm-hmm. etc. And there is something to be said about being a world record holding or world record setting power lifter if like they want to dig one level deeper into your credentials like oh this guy yeah what he's saying makes sense but like what does he really know <laughs> what does he really know about performance and you always have that in your back pocket like yeah. i know what it takes to get to this maybe ridiculous maybe unhealthy <laughs> level and very much unsustainable level of 100%. performance which gives you such interesting perspective and perspective beyond what I definitely have when it comes to, okay, what is normal, what is sustainable, and what can the average person do? Because you've been so far on the other side of the bell curve. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. I see this play out in a lot of aspects of, of my life, but in other people's life, I mean, 
for example, I say I never missed a workout proudly, but what does that look like in terms of a balanced life? Like it wasn't balanced. There, I was saying no to going out with friends. I and like I was very much only focused on what I wanted, and anything and anyone that got in the way of me getting my workout in, it was unacceptable because that's what I had, and that's not like a healthy lifestyle. If you want to look at it like that, it's not healthy. But when you're doing something, when you're chasing a goal that's like such an elite level, then you're going to be doing things that are not necessarily balanced or healthy. It's it's this champion's mindset we hear about, and I think. While I, I mean, and Barband, I think is proof positive of this. While I'm so thankful that social media and the internet has helped popularize strength sports, at the same time, I find myself, and I think a lot of people, so I'm guilty, as guilty of this as anyone, we look up to the most elite level athletes mm-hmm. for advice, how to live their life. We, we see them posting online about like mentality and the champion's mentality. And I'm like, yeah, I want to emulate that. But they're sacrificing so much. Mm-hmm. It's not normal, it's not healthy, it's not sustainable in many ways and by many different measures. So it's weird. We have this kind of false idolization of these people who are chasing these records and breaking these records. Oh, I want to be just like them. But what you give up is such a huge sacrifice relative to the richness of a life you 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 could be lead, leading if that wasn't like your only singular focus. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting discussion because I think what happens is when you see someone on social media doing something that you deeply admire, you tend to want other people to deeply admire you for that same thing. And you're like, well, I want to be admired as well, and I want to inspire other people in the same way that that person has done it for me. And I see a lot of people doing this in the online fitness world where they see people posting fitness information, they maybe hired an online coach, they got great results, they improved their life, and they're like, you know, I want to be an online coach now too. You know, I want to be a fitness professional too. And they look at these quote-unquote influencers with a lot of followers, and they're like, I want to do that because of how it impacted them in that one isolated Way, but they don't realize what it takes mm-hmm. to be an elite level lifter, to what the sacrifices actually are involved, which is why I think a lot of people get very they get very down on themselves when they hit that first roadblock or that second roadblock or that third that's like really hard. And they're well, what do I do because my family's not supporting me? What do I do because like my my partner isn't supporting me? What do I do because like I got an injury? What do I do here? Whatever it is. It's like I think the main difference between someone who's an elite champion, and that could be in business, it could be in fitness, it could be in weightlifting, it could be in whatever, someone who's an elite champion, whatever it is, is willing to endure an excruciating amount of pain and an outrageously unbalanced lifestyle in order to achieve a single goal. And that's not common and it's not healthy, it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done, but it does mean that if you are thinking about doing that, you have to be aware of it. A big part of the content you push out right now is about balance. It's about finding sustainability, whether you're trying to lose weight, whether you're trying to build muscle, whether you're trying to just improve how you feel through fitness and wellness practice. When was the moment, I mean, you, you, you talk about deadlifting four times body weight, putting down the bar and being like, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I don't want to... I don't want to do what it what it need what needs to be done to maintain this level of strength so far beyond the norm. Where was the turning point where you said, "Okay, I'm going to take 
my involvement in the wellness industry, and I'm going to focus it on helping people achieve balance or pushing out content that helps people achieve something a little more sustainable. Because I remember shortly after your powerlifting career was over, I remember talking to you and you were at a, an interesting crossroads. You mm-hmm. weren't sure if you were going to stay in the United States, yeah. if you were going to move to New York, you were thinking about moving to Israel. Mm-hmm. I, I remember we had like a goodbye catch up yeah. because I was like, oh, Jordan's, Jordan's moving to the Middle East <laughs> and I'm, you know, I might, you know, I'm going to have to go out there to visit him. That'll be a good excuse. And then suddenly you're back, you're in New York, you're training clients, you're working with clients, you're working with Gary Vaynerchuk and you're pushing out this content about balance and about finding that mm-hmm. for, for people individually. Was there a turning point where you're like, oh, I'm going to stay in the wellness industry, but this is the approach I'm going to take, or was it more gradual? It was it was way more gradual. There was a lot of trial and error, and there was a lot of failure and a lot of uh, internal, uh, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance and a lot of internal almost turmoil in a way. And starting off with, when I put that bar down and I'd hit my goal, for the better part of a decade, what my goal was, I felt very lost. Like, what now? Every training session for that entire time frame was geared towards four times bodyweight deadlift, everything. Going to Westside, going to train at Cressy Performance. Every training program I did, every workout, everything was geared towards that. Every set, every rep, it's what I was thinking about constantly. It's all I wanted. So I put the bar down, I'm like, I'm done. And then I'll never forget when I was ready to go to my next workout that next week, I was like, what the fuck do I do? What do I do? Like, I don't have a powerlifting program, but I had been, I'd just spent like the better part of three, four years writing about powerlifting and studying powerlifting for the better part of a decade. It's like, am I doing something wrong by not powerlifting? Is it okay not to powerlift? What do I do if I'm not powerlifting? So that was a huge struggle. And then, not to mention, a major portion of my clients were powerlifters. So does that mean that they shouldn't be powerful anymore? Like, and that was a big learning, learning lesson as a coach is understanding that your goals are not your client's goals. But eventually what happened was I, uh, I started to understand that <laughs> powerlifting isn't the only way to train and that it's okay not to be trying to lift as heavy as you possibly can all the time. And uh, I ended up, did, I moved to Israel for a little bit and I was there and then I got the job coaching Gary Vaynerchuk. They reached out and they were like, we'd love for you to coach Gary. So I moved to New York and that is when my fitness for the first time since I was 13 years old went, went, out, went to shit. <laughs> it was awful because I basically more or less stopped training. Not completely, but not like a powerlifter, not like an elite lifter. I was traveling with Garrett. If he was in Hong Kong, I was in Hong Kong. If he was in London, I was in London. If he was in LA, I was in LA. I traveled seven days a week for three years straight. So basically what happened is I went from a very unbalanced lifestyle focusing on my own lifting to a very unbalanced lifestyle focusing on my business and Gary Vaynerchuk. And in that time in which I was very unbalanced in my own fitness and my own health, I was able to then come up with strategies to help other people live a more balanced life with their own fitness. Going through the most extremes of it, it's like when you learn to deadlift four times your body weight, you don't have to help other people deadlift four times their body weight, but you learn how to help other people deadlift maybe more than they could have or would have otherwise. You learn the mental side of it. You learn the emotional side of lifting. You learn like the recovery side of it. You learn things that you can't learn in a textbook. It's the same thing. I was like learning when I have clients who travel a lot, when I have clients who are super unbelievably busy, when they don't want to or don't have the desire to count calories. Like I 
learned how to do all of these things on myself so I could help them with it. And really, I think the major thing that I try and teach people and, and say a lot is in order to live a quote-unquote balanced life in whatever it is, you are going to go through periods, periods of unbalance in which in order to know where your limit is, you have to toe the line. You have to go too far the other way. And I think that's really one of the things I've done for better or for worse is I toe the line so other people don't have to. When, you, when it comes to exploring, towing the line or maybe exploring those extremes of imbalance, whether it's working toward the four, time body weight, four times body weight deadlift or traveling internationally seven days a week and, and not necessarily having that home base, which is something you just described and you very much went through, what do you have to keep in mind when it, takes, when it comes to taking lessons from living at those extremes and applying them in a broader sense to a, to a truly a very broad audience that's going to be meeting you at different levels along the way. So clarify the question for me. Just so, yeah. I- so when it comes to, you've experienced imbalance mm-hmm. in these several different ways. You went mm-hmm. from one lifestyle of imbalance to another yep. in many ways. And you, you just mentioned how you, you learn lessons through that imbalance. Mm-hmm. Okay, those lessons, you have them in your mind. How do you distill those lessons down to in a way that's going to be applicable to a broad swath of people. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think I've failed more times with that than I've succeeded. And that's what I think has allowed me to succeed. When you it, say you've failed, does that mean you've, you've pushed out content, videos, things yes, like that? Exactly and right. you look back at it and you're like, that's, that's, not, that's not right. That's not exactly the way I would present that now. Y- yes. And mainly because, not because of necessarily what I said was wrong or inaccurate, but more because the way I presented it wasn't as clear and vivid enough and as practically applicable enough, and it didn't hit home enough. I think, especially right now, we have a big focus in just in society and culture on, on logic versus emotion, right? And that it's only logic or only emotion. And it's not true. They're both important. And I think that on one, end, on one hand, you have to be able to present logical facts and help people understand them. But I think one of the best people to get people to apply logical facts is to appeal to their emotion. And that's one thing I think I've gotten very good at in understanding is you can, you can tell people cigarettes are going to kill you all day long. They know it. There's a skull and crossbones on the box. But there are still new people buying cigarettes every day. It's not stopping them. You show them what a lung looks like when it's all like tarred and black. And you show them a video of someone who went through emphysema and all of a sudden, oh, they stop because it, you appeal to their emotion. I think that's one thing that as a content creator and as a coach, it's really important to learn how to do is you can have all the facts and logic that you want, but if you don't know how to speak with someone and get them to feel it and the emotion that you want them to derive from it, you're never going to get them to change in the way that you want them to. Is there a specific, a specific example of something, could be a piece of content, it could be a lesson learned, it could be a wellness principle that you're trying to get out there and spread to your audience? Can you think of an example of where your messaging, say, four or five years ago on that principle is much different and maybe less effective than your messaging would be with that today? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and, and you can look at this from the perspective of, I've said for years, a calorie is a calorie, but only in the last year, year and a half, have I figured out how to make that message so obscenely clear and vivid to people that even some of the highest, the largest proponents going against that 
opponents of that view have now turned sides because they can see it from a much more clear, basic, practical stance. And basically, when people would they would say like, oh. You know, a calorie is a calorie, a calorie is a calorie. And, and people would say, well, no, all calories are not created equal. And that I would just combat. It's just like headbutting, saying the same thing over and over again, not accomplishing anything. And the way that I've framed that more recently that's worked very well for people has been basically understanding, number one, well, what is a calorie? It's a unit of measurement. That's all it is. It just measures how much energy is in a food. And so the way from there, I'm like, okay, so cool. A mile is also a unit of measurement. It measures how long something is. And it doesn't matter if the mile is in the forest or on pavement or uphill or downhill or in sand or in the water. A mile is always a mile. The composition of that mile is what changes. It will take you longer to run a mile in the sand than it will on a pavement, but it doesn't change the fact that you're still running a mile. Same thing with a calorie. It doesn't matter if it's a calorie in pizza or a calorie in a donut, calorie in apple or avocado. It's just all, all delicious. Those all, are all delicious calories. All delicious calories. I have yet to I have yet to come across <laughs> anything I don't like in that statement. The nutrient composition of those foods changes, obviously, and they affect your hormonal profile. They affect how likely you are to stay full. They affect your ability to build muscle mass. But it does not change the fact that the calories in each of them are all equal, simply because they are a measurement of how much energy is in each food. And when I framed it like that for the first time there was a massive switch that went off in a lot of people. And I've continually reframed that with the Big Mac challenge and with a lot of stuff in my content where people are completely blown away. And it's the best part for me is it's improved literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of relationships with food. People have stopped binge eating, people have stopped having food anxiety because they can finally understand that this idea of good and bad food is massively oversimplified and disingenuous. All right, so the next phase for you is... Changing, you would go from changing perspectives on a calorie is a calorie and changing relationships with nutrition and food to convincing people that sumo isn't cheating. That's the <laughs> ultimate, that's the ultimate goal and the culmination of your fitness career. I'm convinced. It's so fun. Like just observing my own emotional response when I knew you were joking about sumo che- being cheating, uh, sumo being a, a cheat uh, stance, I felt myself get triggered by that. <laughs> I felt myself be like, oh, hold on, hold on. I mean, to make sure everybody knows it's not cheating. Yeah, yeah. It's well, like, just, just, just so everyone knows, David is an idiot. I, I like so rarely deadlift anymore. Anyway, it's so funny how just like those emotional responses, it's, it's using emotion in order to put logic into practice. And I think people, so the, the, thing, that we, the thing that we joke about at the barband office is no matter what it is, it could be a man, it could be a woman, it could be a set PR, rep PR, it could be a world record. Every time we post a sumo deadlift, right? It could be Kaylor Woolham deadlifting 900 some pounds <laughs> at you know 205 pounds body weight, just like this amazing thing. Doing it hook grip, by the way. Jeez. Someone will always post, you know, sumo is cheap. <laughs> but then, but then when we post, because of that, when we post a conventional deadlift, we tend to get people who comment, "Oh, thank you for conventional. Thank you for doing this lift the right way." And that's what really gets to me is people people think the lift is the right way, not because they're taking a biomechanical stance, or not because they in their minds think that from a force production perspective, there's only one way to deadlift, <laughs> but because that's how they learned yep. to deadlift, and because that's what they learned a deadlift was when they first went into a gym. That's right. And there's an emotional connection there. It's not a logical uh, loop they're doing in their brain. They're not basing that opinion on logic. They're basing it, I think, on an emotional connection because iron sport and lifting means something to these people. 
And that was what they learned a deadlift was. So for for them, a sumo deadlift creates this like emotional dissonance. It separates them from that emotional connection they have with the lift. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I also think that just in, in terms of like gym culture, right? Especially in powerlifting culture, but there's always big dudes at the gym who are like, oh yeah, sumo's cheating. Sumo, sumo's for wusses, da 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 Great powerlifter like, voice, by the way. <laughs> and uh, of course, if you grew up in a gym in which the people that taught you and you admired always said that, then no matter what happens, as you grow and get older, you're always going to repeat that. It's like the people who believe what their parents believe in terms of politics solely because that's what they're brought up with, not because they actually believe it. This is what a deadlift is. And anything that isn't this isn't a deadlift. Ergo, anyone who deadlifts differently is wrong. That's exactly right. And Chuck, Chuck, when I was 14, the guy who taught me how to deadlift, Chuck always said that the sumo's for wusses. So sumo's for wusses. Chuck said it. It's like, okay, well, you know, Chuck also blew out his spine and uh, is in a wheelchair right now. So I don't know. But I mean, there, I mean, that's a whole separate topic is the injuries and, and the, the bodily damage that powerlifting can do if you take it to the extreme. But yeah, it's, it's, the whole thing is for me with fitness, powerlifting, nutrition, whatever, life in general, is finding what works best for you. And that's really the most important thing in all of it is like if sumo makes your hips feel better, sumo makes your back feel better, if sumo makes you feel more confident, do it. If conventional does, do it. If trap bar does, do it. If single leg RDLs do, do it. I don't care. Just make sure you're lifting and doing something and moving. What is an area of fitness or wellness that you think is a little unexplored in your career and something that you would like to dive deeper into? Behavioral psychology, emotion. um, I think, and this is really behavior change is really the biggest aspect that's not not explored enough for a number of reasons. But I'll tell you, when I first went into college, I went into as exercise science because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. I was like, that's what you do. Meanwhile, I had just spent the better part of three and a half years interning at a very science-based gym, learning program design, coaching people, uh, learning from reading books from Eric Cressy, like re- reading Dan John, Pavel Tsatsouline. I had I didn't even know how good of an education that I had just had. So I go into exercise science thing like, oh yeah, now I'm really about to learn. And I'm hearing what these professors are saying. I'm reading these old tattered books that I'm like, not only is this outdated, this is just wrong. And you're not willing to look at new research. You're not willing to look at this stuff. And not to mention what really hit home for me. I remember, I remember sitting in, uh, <laughs> I remember sitting in the lecture hall listening to one of, a, one of my teachers, one of my professors give a lecture, and I was thinking, this is not going to help any of my clients ever. And I had clients. I had clients that I was working with. I was like, you could have the best program in the world. You could have the best meal plan. You could have the best diet. You could have the best exercise selection. You could have the best volume and intensity. You could have the best phasic periodization, whatever you want. But if they're not following it, it doesn't matter. It's almost like we spend so much time learning how the body moves, we forget that people are individuals and clients move differently and they behave differently. And maybe the more important thing is figuring out how they operate mind and body as mm-hmm. opposed to femur length and oh proportions when it comes to Pelvic leverages. It's just like, not that it's not important, but we need to place a greater emphasis on individual psychology and individual behavior change, individual preferences, 
to better understand how to get that person to do something. Because usually what we're doing is we're we're trying to find and I'm guilty of this. I like I remember growing up being like spending so many countless hours and weeks and months and years trying to understand the best way to program the perfect program. What is the best way to have a perfectly designed program? Meanwhile, after I spend three hours on this program for someone, they're telling me that they're getting the gym once or twice a week when it's a four or five day a week program. I'm like, what the hell is the point? I would rather design you a two day a week program that you hit 100% of the time than design you a four day a week program that you hit 60% of the time. Like, so what I ended up switching to is more behavioral health psychology, understanding, okay, well, I would rather have someone hit a program that's an 80% good program, 100%, than someone hit a program that's a 100% good program 60% of the time. Like every time, I would way rather that. And one of the things I've been saying a lot lately is really pushing the value of walking. Just the value of, and people, people. I feel like I'm talking to Mark Bell now. I'm talking to a younger, handsomer Mark Bell <laughs> We're going right out now. to see Mark Bell next month in a couple of weeks. It's, uh, it's, people almost st- tune me out when I say that. But if you actually look at the research on the physiological benefits, the psychological benefits, the hormonal benefits of 20 minutes of walking, it's bewildering how much on a cellular level it can positively impact you. Not to mention, we'll look at the physiologies in a second, but not to mention, when you get someone who has not done any exercise and they think that they can't do anything, they don't want to go to a gym because they're embarrassed, and you get them walking three days a week for 20 minutes a day, and all of a sudden they lose a couple pounds, what happens? Their self-efficacy increases. They, oh my God, like maybe I can do this. Then all of a sudden they start paying a little bit more attention to their nutrition. Then all of a sudden maybe they start going for four days a week walking, five days a week walking. They lose a couple more pounds. And this is how people make dramatic life transformations. It's people are always looking, well, how do we get them motivated? No, 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 it's the wrong question. How do you get them to take action? And from that action, results will come. And from the results come motivation. When you're so focused on trying to get them to be motivated to do something that's unsustainable, it's failure. When you can get them to take action, no matter how small, it can grow and grow and grow. Motivation, that's fleeting. You have to get them to do something first. My billion dollar idea that anyone listening to this podcast can steal, by the way, I'm putting it out there, <laughs> is to create an app, a service, whatever hot tech buzzword you want, to connect walking buddies. Wow. Because walking has all these benefits. And I have a lot of anecdotal experience rehabbing from injuries, and Jordan's known me for a while, so he's seen <laughs> me go through through some of these. And the one of the best components of my rehab was um, I had an orthopedist who was, told me to find a walking buddy, just start walking, just start moving that. again. And finding a walking buddy, walking is something you can do with anyone. Mm-hmm. And it's such a cool way to cultivate relationships. You're off your phone, you're talking about things, uh, you're often outside, or even if it's cold, you're finding indoor track or something. It's a really cool social activity. And I think for a lot of folks who haven't experienced the warm embrace of having that gym buddy, Finding a walking buddy and realizing this is an activity that can be social is a really good gateway into a broader realm of physical culture. I love that. I think that's amazing. And maybe even if thinking just like now, my mind's going, how do we how do we create this? Literally, that's where my mind goes. And like, what are the issues that come in? Okay, well, maybe there are going to be people on the app who are going to tr- cause harm to others. So if someone's nervous, I'm like, okay, well, what if it's a a call in app 
where it's connecting you with someone who else, walking maybe just anywhere else in the country, where you just connect them. And you either have a voice call or you can, if you want to do a FaceTime, you can probably be hard walking. But that's incredible. It's a great idea. And then you could have different games or different achievements along the way. You've been walking for this amount of time. You've unlocked this achievement, whatever it is. Like maybe different, you get access to different workouts the more you unlock or you have get access to different songs, like workout songs, whatever it is, the more that you do it, like the faster your pace, the longer you go. Like that's a great idea. I think a lot of people see running apps and there was this this wave of running apps a few years ago mm-hmm. where people were trying to beat each other for distance and, go, yeah. and kind of kind of gamify running. The same can be done for walking and I'm sure those apps also have functions that work for for walking. Walking is a, a heck of a lot more accessible to many people like you tell me I have to run 5 miles I, like I can't. <laughs> But I'm not excited about it. <laughs> but walking five miles mm-hmm. doesn't sound so bad. It even takes longer, right? It takes more time out exactly, of my day. Yeah. But I get pumped about it. So that's and, a fantastic, fantastic piece of advice. And you can do stuff when you walk too. Like if you want to do business calls, you can do that. If you want to like do some type of errands or groceries or whatever, like as long as you're tracking your steps, like you can just do whatever when you're walking. I think it's one of the best things about walking per se is it doesn't necessarily have to impede your life. It does like running. You're running. You have to get. You're going to get sweaty. You're going to like be out of breath. And there's nothing. I don't have anything against running, but I actually think that, especially for people who have a lot to lose, and for people who might be a little bit uh, either embarrassed by it or um, self-conscious about it, not to mention the joint strain that can come with it, I would way rather you do 30 minutes of walking and feel good about it to continue than to do like running once or twice, be super sore, have your ankles and calves and knees hurting, whatever, and then who knows? Jordan, we have come to the end of our recording today, but where is, if people aren't already following you, where is the best place to keep up to date with what you're doing and the content you're putting out? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. This is great. Uh, I have my own podcast, the Jordan Syatt Mini Podcast, and that's just S-Y-A-T-T. YouTube putting out a lot of content, Jordan Syatt. And uh, Instagram as well, Syatt Fitness, S-Y-A-T-T. Awesome. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, man.